So, you know, these are these are some of the, these sort of philosophical enormities that, that I think, you know, once you have AIs that can sort of perform, you know, at, at human level or simulate humans, you know, these are going to be activated. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Produced by Soapbox Media. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. In this episode, I'm continuing my investigation into the so-called hard problem of consciousness, I've spoken to several people who believe that consciousness arose in single-celled organisms and is somehow integrated at higher levels through electrical synchronization or intercellular molecular transport into some sort of a unified experience. Hindus and Buddhists that I've talked to believe that there's a universal consciousness of which we all partake in some way. And this is actually similar in some ways to Sir Roger Penrose's theory of consciousness called orchestrated objective reduction, where microtubule organelles in the brain's neurons have evolved to concentrate this diffuse universal consciousness present in the collapse of quantum superpositions. Some of these folks believe that the randomness at the heart of quantum mechanics is necessary for free will and volition. Others, like Bertrand Russell, believe that we act in accordance with our will, even if our actions have past causes and the future is predetermined. Today, I'm honored to be interviewing an expert who pushes the limits of human knowledge in terms of our understanding of the implications of quantum computing in regards to artificial intelligence. If you like what you're hearing, please press like on your podcast app and share it with your friends. Uh, love to see you on our Facebook group, The Rational View. Scott Aronson is David J. Bruton Centennial Professor of Computer Science at the University of Texas at Austin and previously at MIT. He received his bachelor's from Cornell University and his PhD from UC Berkeley. Aronson's research in theoretical computer science has focused mainly on the capabilities and limits of quantum computers. His first book, Quantum Computing Since Democritus, was published in 2013 by Cambridge University Press. He's received the National Science Foundation's Alan T. Waterman Award, the United States PCASE Award, the Tomasani Cicesi Prize in Physics, and the ACM Prize in Computing, and as a fellow of the ACM. Dr. Aronson, welcome to The Rational View. Thanks. Uh, it's great to be here. So I've been exploring theories of consciousness and how it arises, and it's such a diverse field. A significant fraction of the people I've spoken with have said that computers cannot be conscious. Uh, we need continuous processes. What's your position on the sentience the possibilities of artificial intelligence. Okay, this is the kind of thing you want to take a deep breath before uh, uh, fielding, right? <laughs> uh, yes. So, so uh, I, I, I will confess that I do not know uh, which kinds of physical systems can and cannot be associated with consciousness. I regard that as uh, as not merely you know a confusing question, but in a certain sense, the confusing question. It is, uh, you know, or, 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 you know, one of one of the most confusing questions that, that human beings have ever asked. Right. Uh, uh, um, you know, I mean, it has all sorts of, you know, obvious moral and ethical implications. You know, uh, um, you know, at what point does a fetus become conscious? 
Uh, what about a coma patient? What about uh, uh, various animals? You know, what about uh, um, 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 AIs of the of the of um, of you know possibly the not so distant future? You know, now now um, what what would be the argument that a continuous process is necessary for consciousness? You know, that like what 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 is what is so special about something continuous as opposed to a to a digital process? It's not clear to me what the argument is. Uh, I interviewed uh, Dr. Arthur Reber, who's a philosopher who yeah. believes that, that cells are sentient. Mm. And he holds that there's a significant difference between a simulation of a cell and a cell. Uh, there's the continuous real thing is, is has a has a different is is qualitatively different than a simulation of the same thing. Uh, now I know this this kind of falls into the the question of of artificial realities, you know, and 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 questions about is nature computable and can we simulate mm-hmm. the world, mm-hmm. for example? Yeah. So so you know I, I I'm I'm not sure that this distinction people want to make between you know a real thing and a simulation of the thing you know is really going to answer uh, for us the questions that we want answered right because I mean you know there were skeptics of of AI you know who would you know uh, make this point for a long time they say well well a simulation of a hurricane you know doesn't make anyone wet right you know and then you know to which one might reply well well what about a a simulated person inside of that simulation, right? They would certainly react, you know, within the simulation as if they were getting wet, right? And so, you know, like at, at what at what point does the does the magic pixie dust of of, of reality uh, um, get 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 imbued into something? You know, when does when does Pinocchio become a real boy, right? Uh, but you know, I I, re- I really <laughs> loved uh, the way that uh, uh, Russell and Norvig. Uh, uh, Approach this issue in their their uh, uh, famous textbook on on artificial artificial intelligence, right? Where they say, uh, well, you know, it, it might be true that a simulated uh, hurricane will not make you wet, but imagine someone said, well, you know, uh, uh, imagine someone looked at a calculator and said, obviously, it's not really multiplying the numbers; it's only simulating multiplying them, right? You know, and this would just be nonsense. Like we would have trouble even parsing this because it seems obvious that a simulation of multiplication is multiplication, right? Or you know, you could say okay. that that okay. Uh, the the um, you know the 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 is a simulation of operator just acts identically on 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 multiplication, right? So 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 then the question is, well, what is consciousness? Or like, you know, is it more like a hurricane or more like multiplication? You know, and mm. and and lacking a a theory of what consciousness is, or you know, or even even less than that, you know, lacking you know the a, any agreed upon criteria for identifying what is or isn't conscious. You know, how on earth are we supposed to? How on earth are we supposed to be able to answer that sort of question? It's very difficult to have a discussion about something that you can't define. Uh, it, it, it's it's a, it's a qualia. This is this is the the word that's been invented to make this a hard problem, but you can't distinguish uh, a universe with a qualia from a universe without a qualia, as far as I can tell. Except that presumably you wouldn't you wouldn't be in the latter because no one would be experiencing anything there. But but yeah, but but you could say that you know the the entire way that science has made progress, you know, since you know Galileo and Newton has been by. Sh- you know, setting this kind of question aside, right? 
by saying, you know, uh, uh, you know, we are going to, uh, uh, you know, write down a mathematical model of, of, of the physical world, you know, just sort of, you know, you know, and, and, and we're going to satisfy, uh, you know, we're going to be satisfied if, if we can predict, you know, the, you know, uh, uh, you know, appearance of color, you know, what, you know, if we can predict, you know, based on atomic spectra or whatever, what is going to appear red or blue, you know, how fast something is going to go, right? We are not going to obsess over, well, okay, but is my red the same as your red, you know? And, uh, you know, and, and what what is the true experience of seeing red, right? And, and you know, you know for, with those questions, you know, one could argue whether there has been any progress since, you know, Democritus, you know, very recognizably talked about these sorts of questions 2,400 years ago, okay? Uh, but you know, but 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 at least you know, if you if you put those sorts of questions to the side, then you can make progress. And so then the question is, well, you know, uh, uh, you know, the, the the progress that you make, sort of not uh, 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 explicitly talking about qualia or consciousness or whatever, you know, is it ever going to make contact with the, with the hard problem of consciousness, or is that question just in the, in some completely different, you know? Uh, magisterium just you know serenely untouched by all of the ordinary progress in science so you know, some people would argue that it is an unanswerable question i think many uh physicists and philosophers have said that it's yeah. it, you know you cannot answer it yeah and i i'm i'm not of that mind yet <laughs> i'm somewhat agnostic as perhaps you are uh that i i think you know let's keep pushing forward on on where we can push and we'll look under the light for, for consciousness and until we can spread the light a little further. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, like, like with every, uh, famous unsolved math problem, like, you know, the, the P versus NP problem, you know, is the one that I, I know the most about. Right. But, uh, you know, you will get people saying, well, why do you assume that it has an answer? What if it's just independent of set theory? Right. And, and, and the answer to that question is always, well, you know, ever since, you know, you know, Girdle, you know, we indeed, we, we can't rule out such possibilities, you know, for, for any question that hasn't already been answered, you know, just, about, you know, with, with a few exceptions, like, you know, whether, you know, uh, whether white has a win in chess. You know, we know that that question has an answer, even if we can't prove it, right? But, uh, you know, other other questions might just be undecidable, let's say, from the currently accepted axioms of set theory. Okay, but then you have to push back and ask, well, could we prove that? You know, could we, you know, you know, in, if you could at least prove that the question is undecidable, then then that would give you a, a uh, uh, maybe, maybe a, you know, a meta kind of resolution, right? You know, but, you know, and that was done for a few questions, most famously the continuum hypothesis and the axiom of choice in the 1960s. But for most of the questions that we care about in math, you know, even if they're independent, we don't know how to prove independence, right? And so I would say the same thing with the hard problem of consciousness. You know, even if you could just convincingly show that it has no solution, you know, then 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 that then then that itself would constitute progress of a sort. But I don't know how to do that either. Mm. Can we just step back a, a second? Uh, many of us, including myself, is probably not uh, familiar with this the continuum continuation or the continuity uh, continuum hypothesis. Okay, well, so the so the continuum hypothesis 
was maybe, you know, one of the most famous unsolved problems of mathematics, and in particular set theory. You know, it was posed by uh, Cantor uh, in the in the late 19th century. So Cantor very famously discovered that there are different levels of infinity, right? So there's the infinity of, you know, the natural numbers, you know, one, two, three, four, and so forth. And, and you know, you can argue that that is equivalent in a sense, to the infinity of even numbers, right? Uh, in the sense that, you know, you could put the two uh, in one-to-one correspondence with each other, right? Like, you know, you could marry off, you know, one with two and two with four and three with six and so forth. So that, you know, every every uh, um, um, natural number would, would, be, would be matched with exactly one um, um, even uh, natural number. Okay, so you could say, you know, yeah, even though, you know, the you know, it seems like there's only half as many even numbers than there are numbers. No, you know, those are the those those are, are the same degree of infinity, because the two sets can be placed into one-to-one correspondence, and similarly with the rational numbers and so on. But then Cantor made a very you know one of the most shocking discoveries in the history of math, which is that if you look at the infinity of real numbers, like you know the the points on a line, that is a greater infinity. Okay, that cannot be placed in one-to-one correspondence with the infinity of, of 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 natural numbers. No matter how you try to do it, there will always be real numbers left over. Okay, and this was, you know, proved via what, what was called a Cantor's diagonal proof. You know, which then inspired, uh, you know, most of the subsequent work in mathematical logic from, you know, Bertrand Russell, uh, you know, Russell and Whitehead, the Principia, to, uh, uh, you know, Gödel's incompleteness theorem, to, you know, Alan Turing's work on computability. Okay, but, uh, you know, uh, so, so, but, but, you know, Cantor, you know, made these enormous discoveries. Uh, uh, but then, um, you know, he, 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 he posed the next question, which he wasn't able to answer, which is that. Uh, you know, there's the infinity of natural numbers, which is called all of zero. That's the smallest infinity. And then there's the infinity of real numbers, which is called the continuum, or, or it's also called two to the all of zero power. Okay, so, and, and that is provably a greater infinity. Okay, he then asks, are there any infinities in between the two? So is there is there any set which is larger than the natural numbers, you know, but smaller than the real numbers? you know, in, in its cardinality? Is there any intermediate infinity? And he could not prove or disprove uh, that there was one. And supposedly, you know, he worked on that for decades and it drove him insane. And, you know, he literally, you know, died in a, in a mental institution. Okay, but... Uh, it's hurting my brain right now. <laughs> all right. But, uh, <laughs> but then you know, David Hilbert in uh, 1900, when he announced the, the tw- his 23 greatest math problems for the 20th century, the continuum hypothesis was number one. Okay, that was his first problem, and and people, um, you know, didn't know what to do with it until finally, you know, in in the 1930s, uh, Gödel, you know, and this was just you know some few years after he proved his incompleteness theorem, uh, Gödel managed to show that uh, uh, the continuum hypothesis is uh which, which is the statement that there are no intermediate infinities by the way that, that you know that the that the that the real numbers are the next bigger infinity after the natural numbers he proved that that was consistent with the currently accepted axioms of set theory okay so in other words if set theory itself is consistent you know and 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 if you just add in you know which, which you know by by Gödel's incompleteness theorem set theory can't prove its own consistency 
right? You, you know, but but we can assume that it is consistent, right? If you assume that uh, you know what's called Zermelo-Frankel set theory, which is our you know sort of standard axioms of set theory, is consistent, and then you just add in the assumption uh, of the continuum hypothesis, you know that 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 can that the continuum is the next infinity after after all of zero, then you will not create any contradiction. That will not create any inconsistency. Okay, but so, and then but then in the early 1960s, uh, Paul some another guy Paul Cohen uh, proved that if you add in the negation of the continuum hypothesis, that is if you assume that there are intermediate infinities, then that also will not create any inconsistency. Okay, so in other words, either answer is consistent with the axioms of set theory. So on the basis of the axioms, the, 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 the axioms of set theory that were accepted through the 20th century, the continuum hypothesis is provably unsolvable. If you want to solve it, then you have to introduce new axioms and you have to convince everyone that your axioms, you know, really are correct or are true axioms. And people continue to argue about it to this day. Okay, so... So, 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 you know, we now know in math that a, a question that people cared about, you know, can have that sort of an answer, right? And, you know, of course, you might wonder whether the hard problem of consciousness is similarly just sort of independent from, you know, sort of all, all the, you know, reasoning that we are able to do as, you know, creatures in the empirical world, right? But, uh, you know, but, but if, you know, if, if so, I, I wouldn't say that we know that either. Now that, that's that's very interesting. A lot of that's beyond my head, uh, but very very cool. Um, I know you've inter or you've spoken with Roger Penrose or spoken yeah. at an event with with Roger Penrose yeah. discussing his theory, and I've I've read his book Shadows of mm -hmm. the Mind. Yes, uh, and where he argues that you you pronounce it Girdle Girdle. Yeah. So he argues that Girdle's theorem uh, shows that. Uh, our thinking is not computable. The the process of consciousness is not computable. We are thinking beyond computational, beyond the capabilities of computational systems. Uh, what's your response to that position? Yeah, I don't. I don't think Penrose is right about that. To be honest, you know, and I'm not staking out a uh, uh, like a weird, you know, like I, I would say that that, that almost every mathematician and computer scientist, you know, or, you know, everyone who, you know, knows Gödel's theorem, who was looked into this, has said, no, that, that this argument just doesn't work. But I will, you know, I'm happy to spell out for you the sort of, you know, the the sort of usual reasons that would be given as to why, you know, Pen, Pen, Penrose's argument just, just doesn't do what he, what he wants it to do. Uh, you know, the, the issue is that, you know, the, like when, when I'm, you know, if if I if I'm observing someone, if I'm looking at a a uh, a mathematician and saying like, wow, you know, they're you know they're you know doing something really impressive. You know, they they really understand what's going on, and they you know can can not only you know use these axioms, but they can propose new axioms. But you know, the truth is, you know, I don't know what's going on inside of their head, right? I just see their behavior, right? I see, you know, that that that, that they that they publish these papers. I see that they 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 answer these follow-up questions and so on. And now for any behavior, you know, that I see them doing, you know, including even, you know, inventing new axioms, inventing, you know, new math problems, inventing, you know, radical new mathematical insights, I could imagine an AI that would do the same thing, 
right? I could certainly imagine programming a computer to to you know have that same behavior. Uh, you know, now um, um, you know I, I, you've, I, you may have played around with GPT three, which is you know maybe the strongest AI in the world right now, right? It's a it's a text engine, and yeah, and, and that and that uh, 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 you know is is is. Uh, you know, it can it can it can actually you know it can it can uh, often you know sort of give you a reasonable argument you know for you know like similar to what a high school student would give you maybe uh, you know although if if you ask it to justify something false it will just as happily do that right so you know it it will just sort of run with any premise that you give it right so you could say you know clearly this is not yet at the point where you know it is going to challenge Penrose's thesis, right? Although you know it is, uh, uh, you know it, it it's much more impressive than I expected any AI to be by by by, the, by this point in history. Okay, but but you know, but now imagine instead of GPT three, you know, we have GPT ten, you know, GPT twenty, right? And and imagine that you know you could you know interact with it you could give it a mathematical turing test you know as it were right and and it will just you know act you know indistinguishably from you know the most brilliant human mathematician that you know right and so then you know you would say well well you know and 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 you know is set theory consistent right it would say well you know set theory you know you know i i can from within the axioms of set theory you can't prove you know, its own consistency. But yes, I believe that it, that it is consistent, right? You know, because I have some intuition for it. And now the truth is a human mathematician wouldn't have been able to tell you anything better than that, right? You know, that's just, that's just the same as a human mathematician would have been able to say. And you could, you could imagine some, you know, machine learning procedure that would, that would, that would learn to, to say the same thing when, when asked the same question. Okay, and so now, you know, in order to say why that doesn't count, Penrose is forced to retreat to some kind of internal criteria. Okay, so he's forced to say, well, you know, the, yeah, the AI might say that it believes that the axioms of set theory are consistent, or, you know, that they, that they have a model or, or whatever, or, but, you know, it doesn't really mean that, right? It's just, you know, parroting, you know, you know, what was in its code. Whereas when I say that, I really mean it. You know, I can just I can just see all the sets just sort of laid out there in my in my mind's eye. You know, I can see that set theory is consistent. Right. And and okay, there there, there are a couple of problems with that, right? You know, one of them is, you know, something you know, in the past humans have thought that they could just see intuitively that some axioms were consistent and have been wrong about it, right? Maybe the most famous example was Frege, right? Who like wrote this whole uh, uh, treatise on foundations of arithmetic in the late 1800s. And then famously, the entire program was killed by Bertrand Russell, right? When Russell asked, well, what about, what if we define the set of all sets that do not contain themselves as members? Right, which was a thing that you were allowed to do in Frege's system, right? And then you could ask the question: Well, does that set contain itself as a member, right? And and if it does, then it doesn't. But if it doesn't, then it does, right? And that and that killed, <laughs> you know, that, that 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 killed the entire system that Frege had labored on for for uh, for 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 a decade or more. Okay, and and you know, Frege, to his credit, immediately admitted that and said, okay. My whole pro, you know, and 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 we well, you know I was talking about wow. I was talking about Zermelo Frankel set theory, you know, as like the standard foundation of math from the 20th century. That was sort of born out of the ashes 
of you know the death of Frege's program, right? The whole point of this Thermalo-Frankel system was to sort of avoid the contradiction that, that, that comes in when you talk about the set of all sets or, 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 or things of that kind. Okay, but you know, the truth is that you know the greatest human logicians on earth at the time missed this, right? They missed that there was this inconsistency in the system, you know, until uh, until Bertrand Russell noticed it. Okay, so and you know there are, there are many you know more contemporary examples, right, where you know people you know conjecture that some axiom is consistent and and it turns out not to be. Okay, so um, so so you know uh, uh, you know our experience is that humans you know do not have some kind of supernatural insight, you know, uh, you know, that, you know, there are people, of course, who are more, more brilliant than others at math. You know, there are people who are, you know, you know, for, for just about any of us, there will be people who, you know, you know, will maybe seem magical to us because, you know, they will be so much more brilliant than us, but then those people will, you know, will, will also make errors. Right. Those people will, you know, will have other people who they look up to as more, you know, as more brilliant than them. Okay. So, uh, so, 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 um, um, so, so now, you know, if you want to say, well, I, I, um, okay, I, I can just see that, that, you know, a model of, piano arithmetic exists or a model of set theory exists. I could just see it intuitively. I mean, it becomes an unfalsifiable claim. It becomes the same sort of argument, you know, as if someone had said, well, you know, the, an AI might say that it, it you know, uh, enjoys the, the beauty of a poem or it enjoys strawberries with cream or, or, or whatever, but, but it's really just saying it, right? It doesn't really have qualia. Right. But in that sense, you know, in that case, I would say, well, then why not just go back to the original argument that people have been having for thousands of years? You know, why even bring Gödel's theorem into it? Right. Why not just talk about strawberries and cream? Mm -hmm. That's that's good. That does bring it back to a reductio ad absurdum. Intuition is, 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 is good as far as it can be backed up by calculations. (laughs) Because otherwise, you could be wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, look, you know, one one could, one could imagine where Penrose or some version of Penrose was able to make a case, right? Where where you know the, the you know the, that would be really like a sword and a stone, right? Like 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 you know hu- humans would be King Arthur, right? They could pull the sword out of the stone. They can just do this demonstrable task that an AI just 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 you know provably cannot do or provably would need astronomically greater time to do right so you know you could you could imagine like uh uh for for example if if humans were able to you know reliably solve some kind of really really hard computational problem you know in computer science we talk a lot about np complete problems right where where, you know you uh you might have an exponential space of possible solutions to search through you know, and you know a good solution if you find one, right? But there are just so many possibilities to check, you know. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, and, and a, a huge fraction of what we want to do in computer science, you know, from, you know, uh, uh, training a machine learning model to uh, uh, optimization to, um, you know, breaking cryptographic codes or, you know, mining Bitcoin or, you know, can be reduced to these kind of, you know, NP problems that that's what they're called. Problems where, you know, you can, there are exponentially many possible solutions, but, you know, you can verify a good solution if someone shows it to you. 
And now imagine that humans were able to reliably solve those problems. And imagine that we could prove that a computer needed, you know, an exponential amount of time to solve it, right? Then that would be a sword in the stone test, right? That would be the sort of thing that, that, that I imagine, you know, you know, Penrose would, 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 would could, could then seize upon, right? And say, ah, you see, right? This is the, this is the task that, 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 that separates humans from, you know, at least any currently constructed computers, at least any computers that, uh, uh, you know, are, are based on the, 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 the Turing model, right? But we don't know of any such example. Right. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, in fact, humans, you know, cannot reliably solve these NP complete problems. And and for most examples, like finding the prime factors of a, you know, uh, let's say, you know, of a huge number or finding the shortest route that visits a whole bunch of cities. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, you know, while while we don't know of a provably efficient method, even on computers, I would much rather give that problem to my computer than try to do it myself. Right, or try to do it with pen and paper, right? And and so 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 it's very hard to sort of point to a clear separating example of that kind. So, in in your opinion, then, uh, and is there any evidence that would distinguish um, uh, classical computing from quantum computing in the in the realm of human cognitive? cognition or you know can can we even tell whether we're using quantum mechanics or is there any magic there oh well okay so well i mean i mean of course you know this this is what most of my work has been about for 20 plus years about quantum computing and in what you know ways can it can it outperform classical computing uh so uh uh um you know i uh now now um the 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 you know to 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 tell you in one sentence uh uh yes you know, we 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 now believe that there are uh, uh, clear domains in which quantum computing can exponentially outperform classical computing, and as far as we know, none of those domains have anything to do with human cognition. Okay, that's fair. Okay. So so you know so so you know the the examples where quantum computers you know can get huge speed ups we think over classical computers. Well, there are a few of them. Okay, the the original and you know maybe still today uh, most important one uh, practically is just simulating quantum mechanics itself, right? Like if you want to uh, know the rate of some chemical reaction or you want to know you know the behavior of some new material, right? A quantum computer, you know, of the sort that you know many companies are now racing to build, you know, could be an incredibly useful uh, tool of of discovery. For those sorts of things, you know, it could help in uh, dis- potentially, you know, designing new drugs, uh, designing, you know, new photovoltaics, high temperature superconductors, right, which are all quantum mechanical problems at the core, right? So, you know, maybe it's not surprising that a computer that itself is quantum mechanical could help with that. That was, you know, that was Richard Feynman's um, um, original idea when he when he introduced quantum computing in the early 80s. Um, uh, but now, now the discovery that really got everyone excited about quantum computing, sort of put it on the map, was um, um, Peter Shor's discovery in the mid-1990s that a quantum computer could also quickly find the prime factors of, of huge composite numbers, right? So, you know, like, like a, a, if I give you a, 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 a composite number that is, let's say, n digits long, right, if you tried to 
find, and I asked you to find its prime factors. If you tried to do that by just testing one divisor after the other in a brute force way, that would take time that was would be exponential in n. Okay, uh, so you know if n is in the thousands, that could easily be longer than the age of the universe. Uh, now we do know factoring methods that are better than that, but they're still pretty slow. The best ones that we know use time that's like exponential in the cube root of n, okay, uh, or something like that. And so you know because factoring is believed to be a hard problem, you know, we use it as the basis of much of the encryption that currently protects the internet. Okay. So anytime you order something from Amazon or you, you know, you send your credit card number online or you're back, you visit any website with HTTPS in the URL, you know, and you see the little padlock icon on your web browser, right? Your information is being protected by well, you know, one of a few cryptographic codes, but, you know, which are based on things like the, the hardness of, of factoring numbers, okay, uh, the, belie the believed hardness. And what Shor showed is that if you could build a scalable quantum computer, then that would no longer be true. Okay, so, so he gave an algorithm uh, on a quantum computer, which, you know, uh, um, did, you know, sort that did, did, didn't exist at the time, and and still doesn't exist at the at the level that we we would need it. Okay, but uh, but but he gave uh, an algorithm that would factor an n-digit number using only a, about n squared operations, something like that. Okay, so so he showed that you know if you could build a a quantum computer with thousands or millions of what we call qubits, which are you know quantum mechanical bits bits that can have superposition of zero state and, and one state. Um, and, you know, if, if it worked according to textbook quantum mechanics, you know, if it works like the theory says it should, then you could use it to, to factor numbers quickly, you know, and thereby break most of the encryption that currently protects the internet. Okay, so that, that was a tremendously exciting discovery. And that really, uh, that's really what started, you know, quantum computing as a, as, as a field and started, you know, the, the quest to actually build practical quantum computers. Uh, since then, we've, people have discovered other applications for quantum computers, um, you know, uh, including a, a Grover's search algorithm, uh, which is, you know, anytime you have like a list of n possible solutions to some problem, you know, it could be like an, an, an NP-complete problem or, you know, a search or optimization problem. Uh, and, you know, you just, you, you know how to recognize a solution if you find it, you know, so like uh, classically, you know, if you knew nothing else, then you'd just be doing pure trial and error. And, you know, it might take about N steps until you find the solution, right? You know, maybe, maybe N over two steps on average. Right, uh, if you're just guessing them randomly. Okay, uh, what Grover showed was that a quantum computer could find the solution with only about the square root of n steps. Okay, so compared to Shor's algorithm, this had an enormously greater range of applications. Right, it's you know it's not just so so Shor what Shor did was extremely specific to factoring numbers and a few other very very special problems in number theory and group theory, right? Where he really had to take advantage of the structure of those problems. It was not just a simple matter of just, you just try all the different the possible divisors in superposition or something like that. If it, if it were that simple, you wouldn't have needed Shore to think of it, right? Uh, uh, but so, so, okay, but so, so Shore's algorithm was this exponential speed up 
but for these very specialized problems. Grover's algorithm is for an enormous range of practical problems, but the speed up is not exponential. The speed up is only by the square root. Okay, so so you know, so you know, and the square root of like two to the thousand power is two to the five hundred power, right? It's still pretty big, right? It's uh, you know, it's uh, so so Grover's algorithm would you know would give you something, but it would not sort of move problems from this sort of exponential you know time family to the linear or quadratic time family. Okay, it wouldn't it wouldn't it wouldn't do that much. So 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 what we learned early on was that even quantum computers would have limitations, right? You know, there, there would still be problems that would, that would be hard even for them, you know, but, but there would also be some problems that are exponentially hard uh, classically, but that allow the, these, these remarkable uh, quantum mechanical speedups. Uh, and, and, you know, and, and now you could say, well, well, where exactly is the line between the two, right? Like, uh, uh, you know, for, 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 for which kinds of problems can we expect quantum speedups? And that is an enormous question, you know, one that we've been working on for the past 30 years, right? You know, the answer to that question is not a sentence. It is, you know, an entire field of study, right? Just like classical algorithms is, is an entire field of study. Okay, but now, now your your question was about you know what does any of this have to do with human consciousness, and I would say the answer is far from obvious, right? I mean, you know, for 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 a couple of reasons, right? One of them is that you know I would say that there there is no physical evidence that the brain is that the you know that the, 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 that any animal brain you know, including the human brain, sort of is operating as a quantum computer, right? Uh, you know, what, what we see when we look at the brain is we see, you know, neurons, which, uh, you know, uh, you know there, are, there are, you know, billions upon billions of, of neurons, you know, connected by, by synapses. And, you know, but the, but the neurons, you know, you know, each neuron is itself quite complicated, but it seems complicated in basically classical ways. You know, and in particular, once a neuron either fires or does not fire, you know, that seems like a classical event, right? Like it doesn't, you know, a, a neuron does not go into a superposition of firing and not firing, right? And in fact, you know, if it, if it, if it tried to do that, you know, then the, th that superposition would not survive for more than the tiniest fraction of a second. Okay, and the reason is that you know, the brain is a very sort of hot, wet environment, right? It, it is no place for a qubit, right? A, a, you wouldn't expect a quantum system to be able to maintain its, you know, its state for any appreciable amount of time without, you know, in effect being measured by its environment, sort of, you know, leaking or becoming entangled with its environment. These are, these are all uh, uh, different ways to say it. Okay. Uh, um, uh, you know, now, like when, when people are trying to build quantum computers now, right, they are, uh, um, you know, doing things like, you know, taking um, superconducting, you know, uh, uh, um, coils, you know, Josephson junctions, they're called, putting them on a chip and then cooling that chip in a dilution refrigerator to um, um, like a hundredth of a, a degree above absolute zero. Right. And that's just to keep them from in this quantum superposition. Right, right. And even, right, that's right. In order to maintain the quantum superposition of, of the qubits. And even then, that's not called, the, okay, that's not keeping the qubits alive for as long as we want them to stay alive, right? That's just what a commercially available dilution fridge will give you, 
Okay, so 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 you know, so you're 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 entering a regime which seems you know of physics, which seems very far removed from biology. Okay, but then then the other thing is that even supposing that somehow the brain were able to do quantum computation, you know, it's not clear how much that would be good for. Like suppose that you had a superpower of you know of simulating molecular dynamics and of uh, breaking um, uh, the HTTPS encryption that protects the internet, right? How much survival value do you think that would have had for your ancestors on the African savanna, right? The fact that we haven't been able to find, you know, a lot of application of this quantum computers, like, you know, when, when they were first posited, it was like this magical thing that's going to solve all of our problems, will superimpose everything, it'll come to a solution. Right. Well, you have to distinguish how it got written about in the press from what the experts understood, right? And, you know, a lot of what I've been doing on my blog, frankly, for the past, you know, 16 years has precisely been trying to bridge that gap. You know, it's been just trying to, you know, take like, no, we don't think a quantum computer will just solve NP-complete problems by trying all the answers in parallel. And, you know, and, and, and just saying things that are, that are obvious to everyone who works in this field, right? They're not even controversial. But then when you say them to the public or to business people or to investors, then it's news. It's news to them because they were led by a lot of irresponsible hype to expect something totally different. You feel these are, are are real limitations and not just the fact that we haven't come up with the right algorithms. You think that there is no real magic. Here. Well, that's a, that's a hard question because, yeah, because, you know, the truth is that, like, you know, we don't even really understand the limitations of classical algorithms. Yeah. Right. So, you know, that this is what, you know, this famous P versus NP problem. That's exactly what it's about. Right. So like, you know, could it be that for all of these NP problems, meaning all the problems where you could quickly recognize a solution if you were shown one, uh, that there is actually a fast algorithm to find the solution, even on a conventional computer. Right. That might sound fanciful and yet no one has ruled it out. Right. That is the P versus NP problem, which I would say is, is you know, a a a math problem that is sort of defining for the 21st century, you know, at least as much as the continuum hypothesis was for the 20th century. And that's right, basically the traveling salesman problem. To, to The salesman has a, a set of cities to, to visit and, and you have to do it in the shortest period. And the more cities you get, the, the more complex the solution has to be and yeah. the more space you'd have to look at to solve the problem. Exactly. The, no, the traveling salesman problem is one of the most famous examples of what are called the NP-complete problems, which are the problems in NP, which sort of, sort of capture the entire difficulty of the class NP. If you can solve them, if you can solve any one of them, then P would equal NP, meaning that you could efficiently solve all NP problems. Uh, Factoring is not believed to be NP-complete. That's why Shore was able to give a quantum algorithm to solve it, right? By taking advantage of very special properties that it had. Okay, we so for the NP-complete problems, you know, we don't know whether there is a fast quantum algorithm. We don't even know whether there is a fast classical algorithm. Okay, you know, we know that quantum computers could give you the speed up of Grover's algorithm which is this modest sort of square root speed up, uh, we don't know whether they could generally do better than that. Okay, so these are all enormous unknowns. Okay, but I, you know, I like to say that, you know, if, if we were physicists instead of, you know, mathematicians, computer scientists, we would have just declared P not equal to NP to be a law of nature. 
you know, we would have just said, you know, this is an observed fact about the world. We're going to assume that it's true, you know, until some revolution comes along and, and tells us otherwise, right? Uh, you know, it, it it seems like like um, you know, the the entire uh, software industry for you know half a century or more, you know, has been you know looking for faster ways to you know uh, get approximate solutions to combinatorial problems, right? And, and and no one has ever found anything that would sort of bridge this divide. And so so you know, where, where, whereas whereas if indeed you know it's not possible, then we understand a lot about why we haven't been able to prove it yet. Right. There are just immense difficulties in sort of proving a negative, you know, proving that there is no fast algorithm to do something. OK, but you're right. You know, you're, you're right. I mean, the, 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 the truth is that sort of in the you know, I, I talked about this sort of black box world where all you know how to do is a guess a solution and, you know, check whether it's valid or not. Like in, within that world, we know that Grover's algorithm is the best that even a quantum computer could do. Okay, but in the real world, you know, you always know more about your problem than that, right? Like if I give you a traveling salesman problem, right? You you're able to do more than just guess a route and then see like is it is it uh, uh is is it short enough or not, right? You can you can you can make part of a route and then backtrack because it doesn't look like you know it's right, right? You can do all kinds of you you can you can you can have a route. That is that is not quite right, but then you can make little little local improvements to it, right? You can you can you can play all kinds of tricks, and so you know, are there any tricks that will let either a classical or a quantum computer solve those sorts of problems much faster than how we currently know? Um, you're right. You know, these are enormous problems. These are these are what sort of keep us keep us employed as classical and as quantum computer scientists. So. Assuming then that uh, consciousness and our minds and everything that we're doing is, is we know the physical laws. There's no evidence that the physical laws are being broken. There's no evidence that there's a soul behind this or magic or, or something doing this. So assuming there is no magic and assuming that we know the rules pretty well, we just haven't been able to prove it. How does this then affect your moral judgment on AI? When do we have to start treating our AIs as beings. Yeah, uh, you know the, these are <laughs> that, that's it. That that's an enormous question. You know, I mean, I mean, I would say that my my you know my my sort of first intuition uh, uh, when when I try to think about this, you know, is very close to to Alan Turing's. You know, as which you know expressed in his his epical pay paper in 1950, computing machinery and intelligence. Right, which this is the paper that proposed the Turing test. Right, that basically said, look, if there is a being who you can interact with, you know, from behind the screen, or you know, let's say, you know, you know, we would we would say today, like in 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 an online chat, right, and if this being is totally indistinguishable to you, you know, from a human, right, by any test that you can devise, right, you know, so that you know you are you know, just, just, you know, you will swear up and down that, you know, that it, it is a human, then why aren't you morally obligated to regard it as if it were a human, right? And, and you know, ultimately, you know, like, like people treat this as a, as a, as, as like a, 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 a metaphysical argument, you know, or they, or they get obsessed with kind of the, the, the details of how this imitation game, you know, would actually run, right? But, but I feel like at its core, it's really a moral argument. 
right? It's like, you know, uh, like if, 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 if the being on the other side of the screen turns out to be made out of silicon rather than out of carbon, why is that more relevant than, let's say, the color of a person's skin? Why is it more relevant than, you know, whether they're a male or a female, right? You know, and of course, you know, Turing faced, you know, enormous uh, discrimination, you know, because of being gay, right? And, you know, you can even, you know, if you, you read his 1950 paper, you can see places where he's alluding to that, right? And, uh, you know, and like, like why, you know, like, like we, we've sort of, you know, the, the, a large part of the moral struggle of humanity, you know, over the millennia has been to sort of widen the circles of empathy to say that, you know, just because, you know, something looks different, right? If it is going to act like a sentient being, then we are morally obligated to treat it as a sentient being. Right. So, so I, I feel like that, that intuition has an enormous amount of purchase on me. Okay. But having said that, you know, there would be a, a, a one, at least very important difference between an AI and, and, and at least any currently existing humans and which does seem morally relevant. Okay. And the, and the difference is simply this, uh, for, with the AI, you could make a backup copy right? You could copy the code somewhere else, you know, and then, and then you could say, well, okay, now is it, is it murder if I delete a copy, if, if I can just restore it from backup, you know, or is it only murder if I delete the very last copy, right? You know, you could say, you know, uh, I'm going to rerun, you know, this AI from the same initial condition, right? So like, like you could say, you know, so, so suppose that you, you you simulated torturing an AI. You know that that sounds like a really bad thing to do. But suppose that you then reround it. You know you then just deleted that entire interaction and you just reset it to its initial condition. Now you know did you know the bad thing you did to the AI, the torture or whatever, did it ever happen? Right? You know there's no there's no record of it anymore. We we don't understand consciousness enough to to make these judgments. <laughs> no, no. I mean, these are right. I mean, I mean, you know. So 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 you know. And yet, all all of these sorts of questions seem seem morally relevant now, right? Or, or like, let's say that I I um uh you know that 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 the way that my computer works, you know, like in order to just have some redundancy, it's running. You know, it runs every computation three times and takes the majority vote. You know, like the, you know, the computer on the space shuttle, I think, did something like that, right? Okay, now, now have three consciousnesses therefore been brought into existence, right? Or, 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 or is it only one, right? How, 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 how do I decide when a, a second running copy of this of this AI counts as a second consciousness? You know, a second observer, right? Well, we have the same problem in our brains. We're bilateral brains, and they can operate independently as independent consciousness if you break the wires between yeah them. yeah right 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 and now now if i if, if if we have to worry about you know trolley problems like people do in ethics like the, you know should i you know uh, uh sacrifice one person in order to save 10 other people right well now you know i need to know like you know how many copies of this ai have actually been brought into existence by this you know you know and one, one can even ask stranger questions so there there was a you know, a, a revolution in cryptography 15 years ago when it was discovered how to do something called fully homomorphic encryption. Okay. And what this means is you can, we now understand how to do arbitrary computations on encrypted data without ever decrypting it. 
Okay, and you know this this could wow, uh, cool. you know I mean I mean it, it, I mean I mean right now it's pretty slow in practice, but eventually this could have all sorts of applications in cloud computing. Like you know you want Amazon, you know AWS to do a huge computation for you, but you're very worried that they're going to snoop on it, right? You know we now know how to give them encrypted data that they can compute on and be none the wiser about what they did for you. Okay, but now. Uh, you know, here's a here's a thought experiment that is uh, was uh, due to uh, actually a student of mine, uh, Andy Drucker, right? Suppose that we we took a simulation of a person, so so a consciousness, right? And uh, and and we ran it in a homomorphically encrypted form, okay? So so we ran it in a in a form, you know, where where uh, uh, where all of the information, you know, about the state of the brain is is encrypted. And and you know and 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 uh, as we as we do the simulation, it all remains encrypted. And let's say that the decryption key is in another galaxy or something, right? It, it's just not available, right? So now we can say, you know, has a consciousness been brought into existence by this totally encrypted uh, uh, computation that is completely meaningless to everyone in this galaxy? Right? Does it or do, does it only become conscious if we go and retrieve the decryption key from the other galaxy? Okay. So you know these are these are some of the these sort of philosophical enormities that that I think you know once you have AIs that can sort of perform you know at, at human level or simulate humans you know these are going to be activated. These these sort of questions bring bring up. I don't know if you're familiar with Daniel Dennett's uh, approach to, to consciousness. That you know, there, it's not a thing. It's a it's a, a post hoc r- rationalization, right? And you know that process almost that that um, viewpoint almost seems to be necessary <laughs> when you start getting to these problems. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you 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 could say, well, okay, you know, so I, I think the challenge now becomes if you want to say that there is something special about the brain that is going to differentiate it from all of these computer simulations that you can play all of these weird games with, right? Then now the burden is on, you know, the you know the the believer in the brain specialness. Right. They're the one who has to articulate what is it that is different about the brain. Right. Why isn't it just a meat computer? Right. And and, you know, I think, you know, the 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 closest thing to a potential answer to that that I have been able to think of. Right. You know, like, like, you know, and I'm not sure whether I believe it, but uh, but, you know, like this is the kind of thing that a principled answer might look like is to say, well, well, maybe it is just physically impossible to make a good enough copy of someone's brain, right? Maybe, you know, if you wanted to make a good enough copy of you, let's say, good enough to, to you know, instantiate a second copy of you or, you know, duplicate your identity or whatever, then you would actually have to scan your brain all the way down to the molecular and atomic level, okay? But, but in some sense, you can't do that because of uh, what's called the no cloning theorem in quantum mechanics, right? That, you know, you're, uh, well, what'll be more familiar to most people is probably the, the uncertainty principle, right? That, you know, you, 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 you know, if you try to measure the exact quantum state of all of the molecules in the brain, you'll actually necessarily change those states, right? And, and so then, you know, you might say, well, in order to make a good enough copy of your brain, you know, you, you, maybe you would necessarily have to destroy it 
in the process. And so then if so, there is a kind of privacy or uniqueness to an individual human identity, you know, that an AI program would not have because, you know, you could always just freely copy the AI program. Right. So, you know, so ironically, we're, we're, you know, this, this would not be kind of a positive thing that, that would distinguish humanity, right? Like a task that we can do and that the AI can't do. This would be a negative thing, right? This would be something that cannot be done with us, but that can be done with the AI. <laughs> You're going to have to bring the evidence for that. Yeah, right, right, right. But now, like, is that actually true, right? Like, you know, so it, it, it is also plausible that that maybe you know you could you could you know like yes it would be you know technologically very challenging to scan the state of someone's brain and make a duplicate of it but you know you know you would only have to be looking at the classical level right you would you would just need some nanobots that would just scan let's say the strength of every synapse and the connectivity pattern of the neurons and and that would be good enough right uh, so, you know, so that, 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 you know, and I think probably most people who, 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 who think about this would, would incline toward, 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 toward that latter position. Uh, but you know, the, the, you know, I would say like, if, if I were really going to believe in, in ineffable human specialness, right, then this is the kind of question that I would be looking at. Like, you know, can, can you actually physically copy the state of someone's brain you know, without destroying them in the process, right? Like, you know, this is a question where, unlike the hard problem of consciousness, it seems like we could actually learn something, right? Like progress in neuroscience and chemistry and physics could actually tell us more about this. And this does seem somehow relevant to what we wanted to know. I've talked to some people that are doing experiments on quantum image information processing and you know, superpositions and uh, I've, I've talked to people that are looking at uh, polarized electron spins and fruit flies and there's a lot of really cool stuff going on right now. And I'm, I'm really excited to follow along with that and just see where it goes. Yeah. So I, you know, I would say that there, there is a lot of evidence that, you know, quantum effects are important in biology and in, in, in various contexts. I mean, green plant photosynthesis, you know, relies on quantum tunneling effects. Uh, uh, bird sonar, you know, relies on, you know, uh, uh, apparently, you know, uh, some quantum entanglement effect in some molecule in the bird's inner ear. Wow. Right. Cool. Uh, European robins. Particular, right. So so people have found all of these cool things. Right. But they're all kind of at the, you know, molecular level. Right. Which is which is, you know, what you would expect you know, at the molecular level. Kind of, you know, everything is quantum mechanical. So why wouldn't, you know, natural selection find ways to exploit that? Right. And, and it looks like it looks like indeed it does. Right. But then and whether or not that's important for consciousness or not is also a good question. Exactly. But then is any of that actually relevant to consciousness? That is a much, much harder question. So we're getting to the end of our time slot. I really appreciate you coming on and chatting with me about this stuff. Uh, mm. Really mind bending. Uh, I, I love the perspective and the, the clear uh, articulation of, of what we don't know and what we do know. And that, I think that's, that's, that's very helpful. And so for coming on, I'm going to send you a Rational View t-shirt. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, one last question for you. Uh, I ask a lot of my contributors, what kind of science fiction are you interested in? Oh, um, oh gosh. Uh, um, well, you know, I, I loved Asimov as a kid. Um, um, yeah, I, I read all the, the Asimov that I could get my hands on. Uh, and, um, um, 
you know, I, these days, you know, I sometimes, I, you know, I, I feel like studying science has kind of ruined science fiction for me to oh. some degree, <laughs> right? Like, 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 as soon as I, like, I, I, I see them say something that I know is just absurdly wrong or that no scientist in that situation would ever say, then it's hard for me to stay inside of the story, you know? But, uh, but I, but I love, you know, any kind of science fiction that, that, that plays things for laughs. And this, you know, I was, I was a huge fan of Futurama, the, uh, oh, the, okay. the uh, you know, science fiction, you know, a cartoon show, right? I, I love that. And, you know, I also enjoy, you know, just, just fiction, you know, about science and scientists, you know, when it's funny and it's well-written, like, uh, uh, the Big Bang Theory, for example, I, I oh, confess yeah. that I enjoyed. That was fun. I, I yeah. A good... A uh, depiction of 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 that level of of interaction. The scientists actually, yeah. you know, typically their their personal interactions and, and getting into that. It, it was fun. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So thanks so much for coming on. Appreciate chatting with you. Um, yeah, well, well, thank you, thank you. Was, uh, I enjoyed talking. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at the Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page at patreon.podbean.com slash the rational view. Thanks for listening.